Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 2. This morning we'll study verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 2. We'll study verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. O Lord our God in heaven, we give thanks that you are not mute, that you have spoken. O Lord, in 66 books, your power, your attributes, your love, your kindness, your holiness, your justice, your goodness and truth have been clearly displayed for the life and faith of those whom you are redeeming. O Lord in heaven, as we read this passage and study it together, written by the Apostle Paul, carried along by the power of the Holy Ghost, O Lord, help us to receive it. Help us to benefit from it. O Father in heaven, show us the depths of our own hearts. O Lord, that we might delight in the heights of the righteousness and grace of Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we come again to the book of Romans, to chapter 2, we are in a section that has been classically called Paul's Great Discourse on the Doctrine of Sin. And if you've been with us over the course of weeks, you may be sitting in the pew and thinking that you would rather call it Paul's terrible discourse on the doctrine of sin. It's heavy and it's weighty. It's like every stone gets turned over. That the hidden things of the souls of humanity are revealed. And sometimes these are hard verses to read and to receive, and to accept, 
And I think at times people have read this passage of Scripture and they've either put it on someone else or instead thought it to be harsh and legalistic. But friends, let me remind you that this section is conjoined to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where the apostle says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul has not a short attention span. He's not forgotten about what he just wrote. He's intentional. And I want to commit to you this morning that the apostle, when he wrote this, even though he has described God's judgment of giving over sinners to the weight and the destruction of their own sins to their impure hearts, their degraded passions to depraved minds, that he does it with a purpose. And that is to show us the depths of our sins so that we would know our need And so that we would run to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, and find in Him grace and love and forgiveness and redemption given freely by faith. Paul has an intention so that we're low, that we might desire Christ and be brought high. This morning he touches once again on the harsh doctrine of sin, on hypocrisy, and on presumption regarding his grace. And so as we come to this, the three sections I want us to consider are firstly in in verse 1, hypocrisy. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, judgment. And then in the third place, from verses 4 and 5, presumption. Hypocrisy, judgment, and presumption. As we come to verse 1, please take note that yes, Paul has labored long over the sinfulness of man. He's touched upon idolatry, the idolatry of mind and heart, the worship of created things rather than the creator. He's touched on the sin of homosexuality, that men exchange natural relations with men, or I'm sorry, natural relations with women for the favor of other men, and likewise women have done the same. In verse 29, he gives us this great list, this kind of overwhelming list, in fact, of sin, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Gossip, slander, God-hating, violence, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. We studied that last week. It seemed to cover everything. It touched upon any possible sin, at least in part, if not in its full. 
and left, again, very few things that were unsaid. But have you noticed when we've come to verse 1 what the transition is? We're still talking about sin, but have you noticed the transition? The difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2? Well, in chapter 1, verse 18, it's their unrighteousness. In verse 21 of chapter 1, although they knew God, they did not honor God. Verse 22, they became fools. Verse 24, God gave them up to their lustful hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to depraved minds. And verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. It's about them. It's about other people. About the irreligious pagan Gentiles. That is to say, every other people group on the face of the planet that is not Jewish from Judea, a portion of the people of God. And if you are a Jewish Christian reading chapter 1, you may simply think chapter 1 is about anybody or somebody who simply isn't me. It's about them. It's about other people. It's about the third person plural. Well, here in chapter 2, 1, this is the transition. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. It's the second person singular. It's about you. It's about us. It's getting personal. It's not about them. It's about us. It's coming close to home. He's writing about about people who are in the pews, as it were. This is, of course, a letter. It's not a sermon. But he expects that the people that read it, and especially the people that receive chapter 2 are people who in general have agreed with him about those other people in chapter 1. If you look down in verse 17, you'll note that he identifies, he's speaking to Jewish Christians. This is again to the church in Rome. This is not just to Jews in general, but the church in Rome. A diverse church made up of Jews and of Gentiles that really struggles over that distinction between the two Groups, but he's writing to people who have heard chapter 1 and possibly people who have treated chapter 1 like something of a spectator sport. They're like fans on the sideline. They're happy to cheer when their team does well, and they're happy to shout insults whenever the other team that they don't like does Poorly. And Paul simply stops all of them. And let me say to you, Christians, all of us in our tracks, and instead of them, he says, You. He says, You have no excuse. 
Another way to literally translate that word is you have no apology. In the sense of apologetics, you have no defense. What can you say? How can you accuse others when you judge them and yet you commit the same thing? Well, how can Paul say that? He's been talking about Gentile sins. He's been talking about idolatry. If the Gentiles had a degree, their major would have been idolatry. They made them after the shape of animals and snakes and creeping things and then the likeness of men. They took posts of wood and carved them beautifully. They know all about idolatry, but for a, for a Jew, for somebody close at home, somebody that, well, engages in the religion and the faith of the God of the Bible, how can that be said? How could it be said at all? There's the accusation in this passage of Scripture from verse 1, or chapter 1, of homosexuality. How could that be said? I mean, that's fairly cut and dry. You either are or you're not. It's a whole lot more binary than people would today like to admit. Right? A monogamous relationship in the, in, within the bounds of marriage with the opposite sex is simply heterosexuality. It cannot be confused for homosexuality. So what's Paul talking about? What's he even saying? You know, why does he say it, really? Well, I think he's looking back to the exhaustive nature of the list of 129. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That great list or horrible list. He's saying you're judging other people yet you have a heart that has committed all of these different things or at least many of them. You're judging people for the same things that you're committing in mind and heart. Thought, word, and deed. Evil, covetousness, malice. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartless, ruthless. He's saying to the guy or to the girl in the church, in the pew, examine your heart. Don't let sermons about sin just go right over your head to everybody behind you. Don't let the conviction of the gospel when it touches the sinful heart of man just be something that you look onto and you cheer when it's going your way and you boo when it's not. He's calling them in one word hypocrites. It's hypocrisy. You're judging others harshly for the things that you yourself do. So I return to the question, why is he doing that? It's pretty mean, right? You received this letter. It wasn't a, hey, how are you? I'm glad that you're doing well. I really love that pie that you baked for me and brought to the house recently. No, it's not that at all, is it? It's, hi, I'm Paul. I want to preach the gospel of grace to you. If the righteous shall live by faith, you're a sinner. 
It's hard. It's harsh. But at the bottom of it, Paul wants people, whether they are outside of the church or within the church, indifferent to simply examine their hearts and know their need for Jesus. It's not their problem, it's our problem too. It's the problem of every man, woman, and child. From the cradle to the grave that apart from Jesus they have a problem in heart and in mind and the problem is sin. He's saying for the person that is participatory in the worship of the God of heaven that while you have been forgiven of past sins you still commit sins in the present that are covered by the grace of Christ but that you must be putting to death. It's not simply in the rear view It's not simply a gospel for other people. It's a gospel for you. You see, Paul is possibly thinking of the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, where in verses 10 through 13, he describes the two men at the temple. Right? The Pharisee and the publican. I'll read it to you. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you. That's a pretty good way to start a a prayer. But then it all goes downhill from there. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine being in a church praying out loud? And you hear the guy next to you pray that? And his fingers pointed at you? What a hypocrite. What a ridiculous person. How offensive is that? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's faithful in his religion. But what does the tax collector say in verse 13? Standing some distance away, even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, face to the ground, that's the picture, shouting out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Do you get the distinction? Jesus understood it. It's why Jesus gave us this illustration of the hypocritical heart It often occupies the religious. From those who fast twice a week, who attend services twice a week, who pay their tithes, who come to men's study, who do it all. It's the great danger of hypocrisy that overlooks the depths of our own hearts and looks past our own sins 
and doesn't cry out, as all men, women, and children ought to, God be merciful to me, the sinner. In verses 2 and 3, we have Paul turning to the judgment of God, to consider it as a topic. And maybe, maybe you, like the supposed reader that Paul considers, maybe you despise when sermons get personal. You really enjoy to hear stories. You enjoy to hear the biblical and theological exposition. You get to hear the cultural tidbits. It's enjoyable about the ancient world, those people back then in that time and that culture. Maybe you're the type that enjoys the theological and the ascent of the mind into heavenly places or the philosophical where you get to think of things that are immaterial and persons and beings. Stimulating. You enjoy the sermons until they get too judgmental. But pastor, look at me. When when he pointed, did he point this direction or this direction? I, I don't like him. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know my heart. He doesn't know what I do on Tuesday. He doesn't. It's just a judgmental church. They're harsh. They're harsh. Paul's harsh. You see, he's concerned that his readers will simply think, Paul, who are you? Why do you talk to me like that? And so he addresses it. It's not Paul's judgment. It's the judgment of God that Paul is concerned with and that he would have us to be concerned with. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Whose judgment? It's not the judgment of a pastor, of elders, of deacons, of church members, of men in general. It is the judgment of the God of heaven. That's the judgment that we ought to be concerned with. That's the judgment he wants us to consider. And here, whenever he points us to God as the one who judges the hearts of humanity, he gives to us two attributes of the judgment of God for us to consider. And the first of them is this. He says that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Again, he doesn't tell you what those two things are, such things, what they are in your heart. He's told you the big list, verse 29 through the end of one. He's told you that. Contextually pointing to those such things, but he doesn't say these such things in your heart. But rather the judgment of God rightly falls on those, whoever they are, who practice those such things, whatever they are, but it rightly falls. If you were to look at this in the Greek and just plainly read it, it would read literally, the judgment of God is according to the truth, or to truth. The definite article's not there. Just The judgment of God is according to truth. What's he saying? Well, it's this. 
that when God judges, he makes no mistake. He sees and he knows truthfully exactly what's in your mind and in your heart and in the intention and inclination of your deeds. He knows it. No man, no pastor could ever pretend to know it, but he knows it, and he knows it truthfully, according to truth. Kids, here's a question, a catechism question for catechism kids. Any kids know it? Does God know all things? Yes. Nothing can be hid from God. Right, kids? That's in essence what Paul is saying. The omniscience of God, that's what he's speaking about. That's what he's concerned with. The God who sees the depth of your heart, the thoughts of your mind, the inclinations of the thoughts of the hearts of humanity. And so you may be listening to the sermon in the past week or this week or whatever, and you simply think, that preacher's judgy. That reformed theology is judgy. They're judgmental, they're harsh, they're mean. But Paul simply says, regarding this, your argument isn't against a judgy preacher, but rather an all-knowing God. It's not about what I think. It's not about what the people in the pews think. It's about the things that are plain to the eye and the judgment of the heart of the eternal God. He judges you according to truth. The second thing is in verse 3 about the judgment of God. He says, it is inescapable. It's inescapable. Look at verse 3 with me. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He puts out the rhetorical and expects you and me to answer the question, of course not, I don't expect to escape the judgment of the God who sees everything. His judgment's inescapable. His power is over all things and all persons. He sees the best and the worst of me, especially understanding even the depths of the deeds that I've committed that I should never have committed. But really, what's Paul getting at here? Is he simply wanting you to know there's nowhere to hide? Be afraid to scare you? And Sinclair Ferguson explains it beautifully when he says, people are generally comfortable with the judgment of God on other people, but in truth, we think ourselves exceptional to it. I'll read it again. People are generally comfortable with the judgment of God on other people, but in truth, we think ourselves exceptional to it, exceptional to the judgment of God. That means this. I have an exception. I'm not like everybody else. I'm special and I'm different. I'm a church member, I'm a pastor, I'm an elder, I'm a deacon, I'm reformed, I'm whatever. I'm this, that, or the other. I'm a good person. And Paul wants to say, 
No man or woman or child has an exception to the judgment of God. None. All of us are seen truly according to our intention, according to the sin that we conceive of and carry out. But why is Paul doing this? Why is he wanting to back us into this kind of corner? Is it to be a bully? Is it to condemn everybody? To have every finger on two hands pointed everywhere at every other person? No. He is calling the irreligious and the religious alike, the one that hates church and hates God, the one that goes to church and claims to love God, all people to see their sins and their desperate need for Christ. No man will ever run to a Savior who he does not believe he needs to be saved by. No one will run to Jesus if they don't believe they need forgiveness and that He freely offers it. And no Christian will savor the grace of Christ if he does not believe he has need of it and has viewed the sins in his heart that Jesus died for. Jesus will just be another world teacher or one who gave us religious platitudes and teachings. They won't cherish Him. They won't delight in Him nor desire Him. They'll stay at a distance like spectators, sometimes happy to attend, but never needful to partake of the grace offered in Jesus. Jesus has grace to the sinful, to the hypocritical, to the judgmental. He has grace for people just like me and just like you. In verses 4 and 5, Paul turns to an issue in the heart of some people, and that is presumption. To presume. And presumption, I think, is the lurking danger that creeps and crouches in the pews of the church. Let's read verse 4 together. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What does Paul mean here? What's he really saying? He's saying that the person in the pew, the person that thinks they're, in general, a good person. Yeah, I sin, right? I hear you, Pastor. I agree. I sin. I'm a sinner. But frankly, I don't do those really bad sins. I mean, I never murdered anybody. I'm a heterosexual, straight, male or female. Not those publicly scandalous sins. Never cheated on my wife. I don't have a wife or husband. Never cheated on anybody. I'm sexually pure when it comes to those sorts of things. But I mean, I do sin, but they're they're little sins. They're just honorable sins. God forgives. 
you know, I've been struggling with this sin, but you know, ultimately, in the course of it, God, God just forgives. He forgives sins, right? I mean, I've been struggling with it. I feel bad about it, sort of, but then we just get on and move away from it, right? And Paul is saying that's presumption. It presumes on the riches of the kindness, the patience, and the forbearance of God. It, it's, it's like saying this. You think, well, God forgives, so I don't really have to do anything with my sin. There's, you know, God's a forgiving God. He's just real nice. He forgives and forgets all the time. He'll always forgive me. He'll always forgive me. It's all fine. I could just move on. Why can't you? Maybe in a Bible study, someone looks over and simply says, you know, God's a forgiving sin. We, uh, forgiving God, he forgives sin. We know that you're struggling with that. Just move on. But there's supposed to be a product of the grace of God, isn't there? There's a reason why God is kind to sinners and doesn't allow their sin to completely blow their lives apart and destroy the relationships and fellowship they have on this earth or destroy their bodies. When he forbears and is patient with sinners, he says to them, don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That instead of just seeing empty forgiveness and a God who turns an eye away from sin, that you're supposed to say, thank you God for your mercy and repent. A radical turning of a life from sin and unto the Lord where sin is put to death. Where you say to the Lord, thank you for your kindness, thank you for your patience. And sin is pursued with the weapons of the Spirit that it may be conquered. That's what Paul has got in view here. Not just saying God's a forgiving God, just sin with impunity and sin all you want. But rather, God is kind and God forbears and God is patient, so you would be thankful and turn away from sin. That's the right response to the kindness of a God who doesn't consume his creatures in an instant because of their rebellion. And he follows it with verse 5. A great warning for men and women and children who sit idly under the teaching of the word. Being called to repentance, being called to Christ and yet who don't. He says this in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed now that's incredibly harsh I haven't even commented on it yet because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a warning. It's intended to shock us. 
to drive us to repentance because of the reality of a day of judgment that is coming on the irreligious and religious alike who had no heart to turn from sin but rather just persisted in it presuming that they would always enjoy forgiveness apart from being holy even as the God in heaven is holy. I could just hear it now, the emails. Pastor's legalistic. There is no faith that doesn't result in repentance. There is no love for Christ that does not result in a life that looks like Christ. I'll say to you simply and truthfully, there is no hope of repentance if you don't believe in Jesus. But if you cast yourself on him by faith, there is every expectation that there is not only grace for forgiveness and grace for restoration, but the grace to help the sinner be sanctified and grow in a heart that turns away from sin. I'm not telling you, Christian, and neither is Paul, clean yourself up and come to Jesus. However, I think the telling of Scripture is simply this. If you know Jesus, you and He and the Holy Spirit will always be working on you until the day of glory. Putting the old man to death and cutting off sin. And molding you and beautifying you and changing your heart, and changing your affections, and changing your thoughts to love, to think like, and to be like Jesus. Jesus loves and forgives sinners. Would you run to him and receive his mercy and his grace? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, for how they confront us, Lord, how they call us to be conformed to the likeness of your Son. Father in heaven, we pray that you would begin a work in those who don't know you and that, Lord, you would bring that work that you have begun to completion in those who proclaim faith in Jesus Lord, build us up in faith in him that, Lord, he died for sinners. Oh, Lord, and give us strength to turn away from sin and to delight in him now. Father in heaven, build up your church. Oh, Lord, help us to be people that would be pleasing in your sight, a people covered in the blood of your holy Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.